We are in Acts chapter 10, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10 this morning. While I pull up my clock, not that it has any bearing on how long I go, uh, but I want to pull it up anyway. Uh, Acts chapter 10 is the passage of Scripture that we are going to, uh, to be looking at, and we started this last week. We're in part two today, and so we're going to start with verse 34. If you don't have a paper Bible and you want one, there should be one in the chair in front of you. Now, you're welcome to take that home with you. Uh, I always encourage people to have a paper Bible. There's just something about um, uh, being able to mark that up and take notes and, and to highlight verses that are meaningful to you. And, uh, and so if somebody has one of those paper Bibles, if you could just tell me the page number that Acts chapter 10, verse 34 is on, I'll be glad to, to, uh, to tell everyone where that is. 536. Thank you. If you have one of those paper Bibles, it's on page 536. Um, what I'm going to ask us to do is I'm going to ask us to stand. We don't always do this, but occasionally we do. Uh, just to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Uh, we find in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra that when they uh, um, read the Word of God that uh, all the people stood up. And so uh, occasionally we will do this. And so I want us to do this this morning as we read Acts chapter 10 verses 34 to 48. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with uh, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Father, we thank you for the word that you have brought to us today. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would open our minds so that we may understand the scriptures. We pray that you would reveal yourself and your will for us through your word today. Take this text and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, this text, um, along with the text that we looked at last week, chapter 10, verses 1 through 33, uh, it all forms a unit. Now, when I say these chapter and verse numbers, I just want to make sure, especially kids in the room, you understand as well, that the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses. It didn't have the big numbers and the little numbers. A man named, uh, what was his name, Lily? Stephen. Stephen something, right? In 1217 or 1227. Lily helped me research this this week while we were driving in the car. A man named Stephen in the 1200s took the text and realized that it would be easier to divide it into chapters and verses. So when we read this, I don't want you to think that... um, that Luke was writing a, a little number one and a big number 10 and, and before every sentence, he was just writing and it came on a scroll. The first day that we um, opened the book of Acts, uh, I printed out a 35 foot scroll that uh, my poor uh, secretary Chris had to tape together and uh, put on a big scroll. We brought that because that's what it would have looked like when it arrived at a house church. They would have pulled out the scroll and it would have all just been text without chapter divisions and verse divisions. So when I say that uh, this section, Luke wouldn't have written chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, verse 18, but it just would have been a text. And percentage-wise, this makes a major section of the book of Acts. It's a large section. Um, Matter of fact, Cornelius' vision is repeated four times. Four times in the span of, of this uh, section of Scripture. I said this last week, R.C. Sproul says that this is one of the most important um, moments in redemptive history. It's one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament because up until now, the Gentiles have been excluded from the people of God largely, but now the gospel is open to the Gentiles. What's a Gentile? Not a Jew, right? Every one of us. If you're not a Jew, then you fit into the category of Gentile. And so before this, only Jews were being saved uh, in the Jerusalem church. And then, of course, you get an outlier like uh, Ethiopian eunuch in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 8. Uh, you get these Samaritans, which are Jewish, but also um, you know, sort of mixed as well. They would have intermarried with different invading countries. But up until now, this is the first time a Gentile was incorporated into the people of God. And so it's a very important section. Um, I asked, is Cornelius the first Gentile convert Is he the first Gentile to be filled with the Spirit? And I had to go back and look, and and I think you could safely say that the Ethiopian eunuch would have been the first after Jesus ascended. But I think that Jesus had uh, Gentile converts as well. You see the the man who um, had the... uh, the legion of demons uh, resided in the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret and, uh, and, and ministered in the Decapolis after his salvation. Uh, you'll see a, a few people here and there. But Cornelius is the most significant one because the Holy Spirit will be poured out on Cornelius and all those in his house. We see the heart of this in the fact that God, this isn't um, a pivot for God that all of a sudden he decided to include those who are non-Jews in his family. But from the very beginning, prophets have prophesied that the good news would be proclaimed around the world. 
Just for example, Isaiah 56 says, The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, all those who keep the Sabbath and does not profane it, and those who hold fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It's always been God's desire to purchase for himself a people from all nations, a people from all tribes, a people from all skin tones, and a people from all different languages. If your vision of heaven does not include a wonderful, beautiful blend of all peoples, then you're misreading Scripture. God includes people from all around the world, and we see this in His character. We'll develop that point as we go. Let me just give you some context because we jumped right into the middle of a story. In chapter 10, uh, verse 1, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is a uh, um, functioning in the Roman military in a city called Caesarea. It's a military town. And, uh, and, and so he is a part of the Roman government. But we also know that he's a God-fearer. It says that he's devout, that he follows the temple prayer schedules, that he um, participates in a synagogue, that he's generous uh, with the people of God. He is converted into a category known as a God-fearer. A God-fearer was somebody who converted to Judaism without um, some of the finer points of maybe diet or circumcision or something along those lines, but, but in every other way were respected and accepted among Jewish, um, uh, among those who, uh, who were Jewish, who practiced Judaism. Cornelius was this. Uh, he was not yet saved, but there is evidence of God's pre-salvific work in his life. At some point, he had converted from emperor worship or from the violent way of life where you've, you probably know your Roman history where they would invade certain areas to expand um, the, uh, the Roman Empire. And rather than um, destroying all the gods uh, within a local area that was just conquered, they would simply incorporate them into the pantheon of gods that Rome worshipped. With only this difference, they would require that Caesar worship rose to the very top of their list of deities that they prayed to and worshipped. So there was a little bit of freedom within the Roman Empire for you to practice your own religion as long as you incorporated um, emperor worship, Caesar worship within that. Uh, so it makes sense that, uh, that maybe um, Cornelius has come into Israel and maybe he's been stationed there and has helped to subdue it or maybe he's been a part of that quelling part for the last few hundred years in Israel. And as a, as a part of that, he's been influenced by Judaism, presumably. But he's had some sort of conversion from whatever uh, emperor or Roman deity that he worshipped um, into Judaism. And he's been labeled this God-fear. And Acts 10-2 gives you more details about that. 
Cornelius has a vision. He's about 40 miles north of Joppa in a city called Caesarea. And he, tra- uh, he has this vision that somebody in Joppa named Peter, he's supposed to send for him and that Peter will come and tell him and his household how they can be saved. So Cornelius responds to the vision. He sends three men 40 miles away. It takes about a day and a half. They walk there. And as they arrive the next day around lunchtime, Peter is also praying and he's having a vision as well. And the Lord is showing Peter, the apostle, a sheet being let down by the four corners uh, and it's filled inside the sheet with all kinds of animals, unclean animals that were against kosher laws, um, reptiles and birds of the air, animals that they would never be allowed to eat. And so the Lord tells him, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter says, never. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. And so the Lord says, whatever I have cleansed, do not call unclean. And this happens three times. And so Peter finally um, is wondering what this vision is about. And then the angel tells him, or the vision tells him, uh, three guys are here. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So four days after Cornelius's vision uh, and a, f- a few days travel, Peter finally arrives and Cornelius is expecting them. He, he invites uh, friends. It says he invites close relatives. He invites his oikos, which is a Greek word for household. Household doesn't necessarily include immediate family. It could include vendors. It could include servants. It could include anybody who's a part of the week-to-week, day-to-day, regular business of a house. Uh, And so uh, um, a wealthy guy like this, an important person like this, would have likely had a large oikos. Uh, It doesn't just mean his family, but we are told that uh, that he, he brings family. He brings in those who work with him. He brings in uh, friends. He brings in anybody who can come. Uh, We know that there are a lot of people because there's six people traveling with Peter and Peter himself. So that's seven. Plus the three guys that went to get him, that's 10. Plus Cornelius, that's 11. Plus maybe 20 or so more who are a part of his friends and family circle. It could be as many as 45 people. Many is just a word that doesn't tell us much. Peter gets there and he looks at Cornelius in verse 28 and he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? And that's where we left off last week. Our section today focuses from verse 34 to the end with Peter is about to tell them why he's here. He's about to give them an answer. Uh, Verse 34 says, so Peter opened his mouth and said this. Before we get into our main text, let me say this. The main point of this passage that we're in today is that God shows no partiality. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, is for everybody. There is no partiality. God is willing to save anybody through Jesus Christ. You say, anybody? Yeah, anybody. Anybody can be saved through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. It doesn't matter what language you speak. God is willing to save anyone. He shows no partiality. There is no pecking order with God where some people are more important to Him than others. The gospel message is for everybody. 
And so the purpose for our sermon today, based on that, is that we should not withhold the gospel message from anyone. We should not withhold the gospel message from anyone. Verse 34, Peter opens his mouth. He said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Partiality is not new to Scripture. Partiality, just if you need some sort of a definition or working definition, you probably already have some sort of an understanding, is when uh, you give favorable treatment to somebody else based on a variety of circumstances. Some sort of favorable treatment. Maybe um, you give favorable treatment to somebody who looks like you or who lives like you or who is in the same sort of socioeconomic bracket as you or has the same skin color as you or has the same background as you. Partiality is that um, sin, it's described as a sin in Scripture, when you show favorable attention to some people over and against other people. And the Bible's clear that God does not show partiality. Deuteronomy 10, I'll just rattle off a few verses here. Deuteronomy 10, 17-19, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, He loves the fatherless and the widow, the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He loves the sojourner. Therefore, you should love the sojourner, for you were also sojourners in the land of Egypt. Came from a background that acknowledges that all of us in our fallen nature have this tendency, whether we mean to or not, whether our heart is reflecting that or not, to to be partial to people. To play favorites. A few weeks ago, Ross preached uh, on Acts chapter 6 and the development of deacons. And the reason for that was that the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And you remember that passage? Uh, The deacons gathered together and they were supposed to distribute food every day, but they only had so much bread. And so they would get rid of as much bread as they could, but when they noticed that their supply was running down, um, those deacons would say, we only have 12 loaves left and we have 50 widows on the list that need food today. Let's make sure the Jewish widows get all the food first and then if there's any left, then the Hellenistic widows can have some. And so there was a complaint that arose early in the church and it was because of the sin of partiality. Romans 2.11 tells us that God shows no partiality. Galatians 2.6 says that when Paul went to visit with the apostles, he went to those who seemed influential, and he says what they were makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6.9, Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening them, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Can you imagine that scenario? There's a believing master who has a believing slave. And the correction is from Paul is that don't think that you're more important master than your slave because God shows no partiality between the two of you. Matter of fact, both of you are equal in value and importance to God and he is not partial because of your earthly position. Uh, Colossians 3.25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. 
1 Peter 1.17, uh, James 2.1. There are many, many verses that describe the sin of partiality. And so why am I spending so much time on this with us here today? Because we tend to gravitate toward people that we either know or people that we like or people that we want to spend time with. And by prioritizing those, we tend to neglect fostering a relationship with those to whom we don't immediately identify or connect with. We tend to gravitate toward people that we know and like and we want to spend time with, and we tend to neglect fostering a relationship with those. In short, we become partial in our relationships. I'm afraid that our Christian culture, I'm not talking about this specific body of believers, but I'm afraid that we as a culture don't leave intentional space in our busy lives to have as Jesus said, a banquet and invite those that will never pay us back or to love our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us or to develop relationships with those outside of our circle of friends. Am I saying it's wrong to have friends? Absolutely not. Is it wrong for you to connect with a certain group of people that would be an encouragement to you and a value to you? Absolutely not. But what I am saying is that we should leave room and weed out the sin of partiality in our lives because this reflects God. This um, reflects a good God who is benevolent and kind and available to all people anywhere without any sort of um, favoritism involved in His uh, work of common grace around the world. And you see this beautifully when you... um, Go on mission trips. How many of you have been on a foreign mission trip and you've been to another country and you've, you've witnessed the value of a human being to God the Father uh, all around the world? I watched a documentary a few years ago about a man in Kenya who would crawl through different uh, trash heaps and if he would find a makeshift box or a piece of trash stacked up, He would crawl in and see if there were any um, abandoned or orphaned children, and he would uh, bring them into this group home. Going out and seeking out every single life is a value of who uh, reflects who our God is, that there is no partiality with him and that he values life. God uh, is showing this to Peter. This is a paradigm shift for Peter. In his mind, salvation has been for the Jews and the Gentiles, you know, in their, even in their architecture. There was a court in the temple that only Gentiles could go into and they could go no further into the temple. Um, Jesus himself told them, don't go into Gentile towns, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. So this is all new that God is bringing about through the New Testament. I also want you to notice here, um, before we get to verse 36, Uh, through 43, that just because God has noticed Cornelius does not mean that Cornelius is saved. This does not mean that he's already a Christ follower. He is not saved because he gave alms. He's not saved because he was devout. He's not saved because he went to synagogue. 
This would reflect the gospel of works, but everything in the text, everything in in this entire passage points to the fact that he needs Peter to tell him the gospel. And the final word of the gospel is that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. Peter enforces the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And that's verse 43. That's the end of his message. And right after that is when the household, all those gathered, place their faith in Jesus. Just because God noticed Cornelius does not mean that he was a Christ follower. I'll leave you to figure out the puzzle. If Cornelius died before that, if he would be saved or if he wouldn't be saved, it's a, um, a difficult thing for us to grasp. But let's get on to verses 36 to 43. This is Peter. He's already acknowledged that God shows no partiality. It's, it was wrong for him in the past to go into the Gentile's house, but now he's in the Gentile's house and he knows that it's the right thing to do. And so now he's going to declare the gospel message. Verses 36 through 43. It says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened. So just stop there because that's a key phrase that gives us some insight. Peter's message, I timed it. Uh, on my ESV app, Kristen Getty reads the ESV Bible to me uh, uh, every day. It's a wonderful thing if you have that ESV Bible app on your phone. But when I timed it, and I even slowed it down a little bit, Kristen Getty read it, and it took two minutes and 25 seconds. Peter's sermon is two minutes and 25 seconds to the whole crowd. And you're thinking, amen. See, Gibson, you could preach a shorter message if you wanted to. You don't have to stretch this out. Right. Um, Peter was different than me. Um, but this passage, this message that he preaches helps us. Verse 37 gives us some insight. He says, you yourselves already know. So he's not teaching them everything that they need to know. They already had a working knowledge. Uh, this is the benefit. This is why Paul went to the, the synagogues first, because they already had a working knowledge of the entire Old Testament, of all the prophets, of all the times when the prophets would point to Jesus. They already had a foundation. What did Paul say to Timothy? The scriptures were able to make you wise for salvation. Christian parents, why do you teach the Bible to your kids? Because it's able to make them wise for salvation. When you saturate your children with God's Word from the time that they're small and you're, they're hearing you read Scripture, whether you see the immediate fruitfulness of that or not, the Scriptures make them wise for salvation. And that's true for this group as well. They already had a working knowledge of Judaism, uh, of what we call the Old Testament, but they not only that, they also had a working knowledge of uh, Jesus and the miracles that he did and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And I wondered, how did Cornelius get this information from Caesarea? It would have been outside of the territory that Jesus ministered in. Where do you think he would have heard this? I can only speculate, but Jesus had an encounter with the Roman centurion. Do you remember? In Matthew chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus came into Capernaum and a centurion came forward to him and appealed to him. And he said, Lord, my servant is paralyzed. Uh, will you come and heal him? And Jesus said, I will. I will come and heal him. 
Which gives us some insight into why Peter was also willing. He might have even remembered Jesus was willing to go to that guy's house, to to go into the centurion's house. And and so this centurion, uh, along the way, said, Lord, I don't even, I don't feel worthy for you to come into my house. And, And so only if you say the word, my servant will be healed. Basically saying, you can do a long distance miracle. You don't even have to come to the house. I know that you're the Lord of all. And so the centurion says, just say the word right here, uh, even though we might be a couple miles from the house. And, and I believe my servant will be healed. And Jesus was floored by this. Jesus actually said, he marveled. And he said, I tell you that no one else in Israel have I found such faith. Is it possible that this centurion Word about him and his paralyzed, healed servant spread and that Cornelius was affected by that? There's no way to know for sure, but Jesus did have, there is a precedent that Jesus ministered to people. So he did have a working knowledge. So let's take a brief look at Peter's abbreviated message that takes two minutes and 25 seconds. He starts off saying that the the word of God is that there is good news, which is peace through Jesus Christ. Good news, which is peace through Jesus Christ. You know, the lack of peace uh, ruins people. Even today. I mean, over the last 10 years, I mean, you just hear the word anxiety all the time. Or mental health, or stress, or fear, or worry. A lack of peace, which is a settled confidence that that God is in control and that everything in your life is not chaotic and spinning out of control, but there is one who holds you and that gives you a settled sense of peace. There's a lack of peace today that ruins people. And if you're going to share the gospel, the good news is that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ. So if you're in turmoil and you feel like there's chaos in your life and disorder and everything is out of control and there is absolutely no sense of peace, I can remember before I was a believer, one of the last things that got to me, that really got to me, was that I could no longer sleep at night. I mean, my mind would just play over and over again all the problems that I had all the immoralities and all the difficulties, all the, my soul was suffering and I just couldn't sleep unless I had the influence of some sort of drug or alcohol or something else. I had no peace in my life. And, and as soon as I woke up, the first thing is like somebody pushed play every time I woke up and this sound of all the problems of all the issues in my life. And it drove me crazy. Have you ever gone, I'm parents, of course, have you ever gone for a week without sleep? Have you ever gone for a month without sleep, right? Ross was describing a real prayer request, Tyndale sleep, like, Lord, help this baby sleep. Something happens to you when you can't sleep. And if you don't have peace, there's a great verse in Psalms that says that God gives, the, uh, gives uh, his uh, people a, a sleep of peace or something like that. Gives them godly rest. There is an ability for those at peace with God through Jesus just to rest easy, knowing that they can rejoice in the Lord, not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the promise there is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One of the key messages of the gospel for you should be on your lips today is that there is peace in Jesus Christ. And only those who have never known peace will really cherish what that means. Peter says that Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just the Messiah for Israel, but He is the Lord of all. He makes this point that God anointed Jesus with power, and He said He went about doing good and healing. What we see there is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus came to proclaim light and that He would set the captives free, right? He came to set the captives free and practically Jesus banished all sickness, disease, and disability during His three-year public ministry. He just did all these miracles and these miracles authenticated the message that He was truly God in the flesh. I know a lot of people have problems with miracles. Um, and I've always said that if, if you can accept the first five words of the Bible, then you shouldn't have a hard time uh, with miracles. In the beginning, God created. If you can accept the fact that there is a God powerful enough to create, it shouldn't trouble you that Jesus can make some mud, put it on a guy's eyes, and, and him walk away seeing. It shouldn't trouble you that a, a dead guy like Lazarus, four days dead in the tomb, that just by Jesus' voice, Lazarus come out, can come back to life. The secular age will discount every miracle of Jesus, saying that it's been mythologized, but the truth is that this was written within 20 or 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we have over 500 eyewitnesses many of whom were dead. You could go, in this time, you could go to Lazarus's house and you could say, hey, tell us about your, tell us about that time you died. Or you could go to somebody who was blind and now they see, you could go to the demoniac and you could say, tell me about the legion of demons. What was that like? This was all written in a verifiable time period that, that you could, Luke interviewed these people. Those miracles authenticate the message that Jesus was the Messiah. He, uh, Peter gets to this point that they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus died on the cross as payment for our sins. Last night, I was looking for a hymn and I found this 100 Greatest Hymns. And I played this game with Julie where I just played a snippet of the hymn. And she was like 98 out of 100. <laughs> she could finish the first line of all these hymns. And, um, and just because she grew up. She was a music minister's daughter. And, and she, you know, back in those days, in the uh, 40s and 50s. I'm just kidding, Julie's not there. Back in the <laughs> 80s and 90s. Uh, back in the 2000s. I'm just kidding. Julia had a, um, she would go to church Sunday morning. Sunday school, and then she would go to church Sunday morning, and then she would um, go to GA and RA and 
children's choir and all these kind of programs and then discipleship and then youth group and then pizza night or whatever. There was like a full day and then you would do it again on Wednesday and then you would do it again on... Back in those times, she said, I was at church five or six days a week and, and these were the songs. Her mother is a wonderful piano player. Um, so I was looking for this particular hymn and I found it because I think it can help us if you don't know why Jesus died on the cross, this, this hymn might shed some light. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. He paid a debt at Calvary. He cleansed my soul and set me free. I'm glad that Jesus did all my sins erase. I now can sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. That's the essence of the reason Jesus died on the cross. You say, I didn't owe any debts to God. What was my debt? We all owed a sin debt. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the payment for our sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, a wage is just a paycheck. You get a paycheck for something that you earn or deserve for work that you've done. And so Romans 6.23 says that the wages, the paycheck that you get for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The debt that we owed was our life. The fact that we have violated God's holy, perfect, righteous standard revealed to us in Exodus 20, right? The Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, You shall not have idols in your life. Uh, Honor your father and mother. Uh, Observe the Sabbath. Do not uh, commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. Do not lie. All those Ten Commandments reveal to us a standard of perfection that God has. There's not a single one of you that has kept the Ten Commandments all your life. Not a single one of you. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so because of that, the debt that we owed was our sin debt. But Jesus paid the debt, though he never sinned. Jesus didn't have any sin to account for. His final words on the cross, you've heard this phrase before, were tetelestai, which is a Greek word that means it's paid for. It's the same Greek word that if you went to any market in the Roman world and bought something, they would have written that word on your receipt. This bought and paid for. That's Jesus' final words. It's finished means it's paid for. And the fact that God raised him from the dead on the third day means that God received his payment on behalf of those who would believe in him. So that's where Peter angles in this message in verse 43. That everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let's look at verse 44 through the end. While Peter was still saying these things, I mean, we're three minutes into his message. 
The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to remain for some days. So far, we've got what's described as three Pentecost events. Acts chapter 2, when the disciples are in the upper room, there's 120 of them. Jesus had told them, wait until you receive the gift. And then once you have received the Holy Spirit, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. But wait, don't go anywhere. So Jesus ascends, that's day 40. Uh, and then 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, that's 50 days after Jesus' uh, crucifixion, the day of Pentecost, uh, in the morning, the disciples uh, see these tongues of fire come down and rest on them, and they're immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. We call that Pentecost. But then you see this Samaritan Pentecost between these um, sort of half-Jews in Acts chapter 8, where after the martyrdom of Stephen, um, the apostles at Jerusalem hear that Samaria has received the gospel, and so they send Peter and John, and they've not yet received the Spirit, and so the apostles go, and they validate the message, and because they've believed the, the gospel message, Peter lays his hands on them, and, uh, and they receive the Holy Spirit. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then they... Um, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the Samaritan Pentecost. And then Acts chapter 10 is the Gentile Pentecost. You see what God's doing? He's just loosening the borders. The gospel was in Jerusalem in the first five chapters. And then it starts to spread to the priests. And then the churches begin to multiply. And then, you know, then it just begins to expand Uh, And then in Acts chapter uh, 9, we read that Peter visits all the churches in Samaria and Galilee. And then he gets to the Mediterranean coast. And then so the gospel is expanding. And by the end of Acts, where is it going to be? All over the Roman Empire. Peter writes to Rome, the believers in Rome, and he says, there's no more work for me in this area. Can you send me to Spain on the farthest edge? By the end of the book of Acts, 30 years after Jesus's crucifixion, the gospel has spread everywhere. But now it's just happening to the Gentiles. Peter sees this. They're amazed. The six men, uh, which is important, they'll bear witness in um, Jonathan's sermon next week in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. These seven witnesses are, are important to validate what took place. And so Peter and these six men stay for several, several days to establish the new believers in the faith. What can we do to apply this today in conclusion? I want you to hear um, really three things to apply to your life. If you're taking notes, number one is the gospel is for everyone. Share the gospel liberally. I mean, spread that thing all around just as much as you can. Spread the gospel liberally as much as you can. And people overshare in your life all the time, right? They just say too much. They tell you about the product they're selling, or if they're a vegan, they tell you that they don't eat meat, or if they don't have a TV, they tell you that they don't watch TV, or if they, you know, people brag about all kinds of things all the time, and they share all kinds of things all the time. 
Be one of those people that overshares the gospel. If anything, be one of those people that someone walks away from you and says, that guy just talks about Jesus all the time. Or that girl will not shut up about how much she loves the Lord. Be one of those people who shares the good news about peace with God through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories of all time, a, a fireman that I baptized at our previous church. Big guy, fell through four stories of a burning building carrying a homeless man uh, in this abandoned building and was on lifetime disability because he shattered his legs when the floor came through and he, he hit the, the, uh, the basement. Uh, this guy went through a, a, a life of recovery, years of recovery, five or six years of recovery, and in the midst of that became addicted to pills, became addicted to gambling. He said, one time I spent four days in a casino, gambled our mortgage away, gambled our savings away, and just couldn't see the light of day. And I just was desperate for something to bring peace and meaning to my life. He said, I said, well, how did you get saved? And he said, um, I, was at a, uh, I was at a wedding and, and I kind of went up to the bar area and, um, and I'm just eating these hors d'oeuvres and I've got a drink here and, and, and I'm listening to these two people argue behind me. And all of a sudden I hear um, one guy making these just really interesting points about Jesus. And so he said, I inched a little closer and I just stayed there as they talked about the gospel as this one guy talked about the gospel to this other unbelieving person. And he said it was a 30-minute conversation. And then he said, I walked away. But he said that echoed in my ears for months and months and months. And I didn't know what to do with it. Came to our church, heard the gospel, got saved, was baptized. But, but it was because somebody overshared at a wedding. It's wherever they were. You, don't, you have no idea who's overhearing you as you talk about Jesus. He needed the gospel. And God put him in just the right place to hear just the right people having just the right conversation. Share the gospel as much as you can. Application point number two for us, which kind of leads from that first point and that story I just told, are there Corneliuses all around us? Here's a guy who's seeking God, following the temple schedule, following a prayer, fasting, praying fervently, giving, listening, desperate to know God. This is all pre-salvation work. We call this the effectual calling or irresistible grace. And don't freak out about that term. As related to chapter um, 10 in the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's related to salvation. The effectual call is simply just this. God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. The effectual call so overwhelms a sinner's natural inclination to rebel that he willingly places his faith in Jesus. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. There is this work of God before you're saved of him putting people in your path and you hearing conversations and you hearing the gospel message long before you got saved. God knew your name. He knew where you were and he knew that he was going to be actively working in your life to bring about salvation. That's Cornelius. All he needed was somebody who knew the gospel to come and share with him. I can't help but think that God has put a Cornelius in your neighborhood or in your workplace. Somebody who's just asking God, if you're real, just let me, let me know. Help me. I can't do this anymore. And then finally, the third point. Do you know what to say 
If someone asked you how to be saved, could you explain it? Could you draw it on a napkin in a diner? Do you know the right passages to turn to? Do you know the right points of emphasis? Peter gives you a really good template here. He, he talks about Jesus and his sinless life as miracle working. He talks about Jesus as Lord of all, as Messiah. He talks about sinful people who crucified him and he died on a cross, that he rose from the dead, that he provides peace with God through Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Could you adequately summarize? You say, I don't have, I mean, Peter only took two minutes and 25 seconds, right? I mean, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know enough. Are you equipped to share the gospel if somebody, I always describe this in evangelism training in a previous for 20 years, I served as an evangelist, which meant I traveled to churches and trained people how to share the gospel. Um, and I always ask people, do you have an ability, a working knowledge, that if the plane was landing, a literal plane, and somebody next to you woke up and said, now, you know, who are you and what do you do? And you have that kind of moment where you connect with somebody on a plane. Could you share the gospel in an elevator ride or waiting for a bus or waiting for the cashier uh, at, a, at a grocery store. Do you know what to say? Often people turn to these five passages in Romans. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10. If you would like to be equipped in how to share the gospel, I want you to um, write on one of those connect cards and put it in the offering basket when you're done today that you would like to participate in a one-hour evangelism training that I'll hold at a future date. I want to equip you. I want you to walk away with a real tool, uh, with the real ability to really lead someone to faith in Christ. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to spend together in your word. Uh, maybe there's a Cornelius, someone who's been prepared to share the gospel here today. It's our prayer that, uh, that you would move in their life that you would draw near to them, uh, that your effectual calling um, would be irresistible even today. That even as they've considered what does it mean to believe in Jesus, I pray that you would move in their life in such a way that they yield and surrender to you. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to um, say a sinner's prayer uh, in our childhood. The gospel is simply surrendering and believing in Jesus Christ, and placing our faith and trust in him. Father, if you're working in someone's life, I pray that you would call them to yourself today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have just to hear your word. And I pray that we would respond well by sharing the gospel liberally, by acknowledging that there are people like Cornelius all around us all the time, and that you would give us the equipping so that we may share the gospel effectively. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.